the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager with you, and I hope you had a good weekend, and I hope you have a good Thanksgiving in this troubled time. In some ways, the most troubled time in my lifetime, not that I think of it, domestically and internationally. They they tend to uh, (laughs) take turns. Horrible things abroad, horrible things at home. And we have a uh, we have a we have a double whammy here going on. It'll be very interesting for me to get reports from you on how your Thanksgiving went with relatives and or friends with whom you differ, because to differ today, you see, it's not it's not like differences of the, let's say, more than 25 years ago. You know the old story, what is it, Ronald Reagan would go to uh, have a drink with uh, the Speaker of the House, who was a Republican, Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill. It was well known. Democrat. He was a Democrat. Yeah. I think you said Republican. Oh, if I said Republican, I blew it. Yeah, he was a Democrat and Reagan was a Republican. The differences today are, to use one of the most preferred words of folks on the left, is existential. If you, if you actually think that it is okay to open the borders, uh, there's not much you have in common. If you think it, that America is systemically racist, and that the primary problem of American blacks or black Americans is uh, racism, white racism. I mean, that's uh, these are pretty un- unbridgeable gulfs. If you, if you believe men give birth and children should have life-changing, body-changing hormone blockers at a prepubescent age, and then be allowed to uh, have their genitalia surgically changed or their breasts removed if they're girls what exactly is the middle ground on that if you think that Israel and Hamas are both committing genocide that they're somehow moral equivalents it's not going to be a very pleasant conversation (laughs) so it's it's tough today. The differences are unbridgeable and enormous. 
So that's uh, that is the story of what Thanksgiving might be or might not be. There's uh, there's all this talk about Elon Musk being an anti-Semite. It's it's amazing. I wrote a piece uh, two three weeks ago. My column was about why, why are Jews so shocked that the left has abandoned them if they care if the the Jews that Jew, individual Jew, uh, or the Jews in general, are uh, are worried about Israel. And ha- haven't the Jews played uh, such a disproportionate role and profound role on the left? I mean, saying that is 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 not even debatable. That doesn't mean most Jews are leftists. It does mean that Jews have played a a disproportionate role. George Soros is the is the figurehead, and yet uh, awful Jewish organizations like the ADL, who do more damage than good for Jews, uh, say say that if you attack George Soros, it's anti-Semitic. I wonder if if ADL had been around in in nineteen in nineteen seventeen, if you attack Leon Trotsky, are you were you anti-Semitic? George Soros is not attacked because he's a Jew. He's attacked because he's evil. He doesn't even identify as a Jew. I mean, the whole the whole thing is is remarkable. He's being when he's called a Jew, he's. He's being misgendered. <laughs> he's, he's being dead named. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah. George Soros is. George Soros has less in common with Judaism than uh, most uh, Protestant pastors. Well, that, that's a given. That's pretty obvious. But he's being attacked. Because he agreed with a tweet talking about Jews and the left. I wrote about this 40 years ago, that the chickens will come home to roost for Jews who either are on the left or vote for the left. But because I am, I've done far more for the Jews than the ADL, yes, little old me, there's no question I have done more good for Jews than the ADL. I have helped bring more people to a, to a respect or even a, a liking of Jews than the ADL has. I have more effectively combated uh, anti-Israel hate through my videos and through my debate at Oxford and so on in my books. I brought more Jews to Judaism than anyone I can think of who is living. Uh, so I, uh, I can say things that perhaps uh, a, uh, a non-Jew like Musk is, is not allowed to say. The, the whole attack on Musk as being anti-Semitic or allowing hate on Twitter or now X is to shut him down because... The left always suppresses free speech. There is no example since 1917 of the left being in power, whether in a country or at an institution, 
and not shutting down dissent. Free speech is the is the antidote to leftism. And so it is. Huh. is it, did you say, yeah, there are so many. Did I uh, report to you last week? This was, uh, what, what's, what's going on here? Oh, my God. There, there are so many walls up at uh, here in, in, in our internet service for protection. I, I try to open up a, a New York Post piece, and they said, Microsoft is checking to see if it's secure. Do you want to continue? There's a piece from last week. New York City parent-teacher groups promoted pro-Palestinian students walk out. Kids yelled, F the Jews. Are you are you taking this in? The this would have been unthinkable that kids would be promoted by teachers and parents to scream "f the Jews" and they use the the f word. Obviously, I wish I could at this moment, but uh, it's it's one of the seven words or six words not allowable on free radio, so I obviously live by that rule. Who would have imagined this? That's the the issue with Elon Musk was somebody tweeted, well, so many Jews supported uh, the the bringing in of vast numbers of immigrants, but they brought in people who hate them. Not everybody who's crossed the border illegally hates Jews, obviously. Nobody said that. But the people, uh, or even legally, it's not even illegal immigration that the, that the reference is to, even legally. We brought in a vast number of people into Europe and the United States from the Middle East. I warned at the time, you're bringing in people who want to kill Jews. Does it bother you? Not if you're a leftist. Because you feel good about yourself, like Angela Merkel did. Angela Merkel doesn't want to kill the Jews. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But, but it doesn't matter. This is liberals make leftism possible. That, that's the way it has worked all of my life. Liberals are not leftists, but they make leftist policies possible. If liberals had said, no, we can't let people who loathe the Western world and loathe the Jews to come in in vast numbers to our countries. But they took the easy way out. They felt good about themselves opening up our countries to people who have been in, in awful circumstances in the Middle East. My friends, I want to tell you about one of the most influential books of my life. In fact, it's on my list of the 10 books that most influenced me. And it's just been re-released, George Gilder's Men and Marriage. George Gilder has been clear about the stakes for the family since 1974. Fifty years later, the need of the hour remains. Men who take responsibility for themselves, men who love their wives, men who raise their own children, men who tackle the workforce, motivated by their family and the needs of others. Without fathers, our civilization will simply sink back into the Stone Age. We need to bring dads back or else. 
Get your copy of George Gilder's classic book, Men and Marriage, today at dadsareback.com. Civilization is built by men with families to feed. Yep, without the dads, we're toast. Get George Gilder's book at dadsareback.com. The stories, uh, the 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 time, the, the the moral chaos that the left has sown in the Western world is coming coming home, isn't it? Where you have kids walking. I mean, this is an amazing story, and yet you're not shocked. That's that's the uh, that's one of the most important points here. A Brooklyn Parent Advisory Board promoted and organized a student walkout for Palestinians last week, a clear violation of state regulations, critics told the the New York Post. The Community Education Council for District 14, which covers ultra-liberal Williamsburg and Greenpoint, used its platform to encourage the 700-student protest involving 100 schools. I didn't realize. Did you realize that? I thought it was a few schools. Yeah. S- did you know it was 700 students? You know, I had read this, but I, I, I read so much that I don't remember or I, I don't read every word until I read it to you. They even shared resources, including signs proclaiming from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It means Israel will be destroyed. That's what that means. Recommended chants included resistance is justified when people are occupied. And say it loud, say it clear, we don't want Zionists here. Zionists in, uh, is a uh, euphemism for Jews. There's this, uh, who was it who just said it? Some some conservative, I think it was. No, 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 no. It was, uh, it was a left-wing broadcaster that Zionism and Judaism are not the same. I'd like to know what the differences are. Ignoramuses make these comments. One left-wing moron who... Uh, has uh, sent his goons to call my show to have me go on his show, uh, said that Zionism and Judaism, Zionism is hijacked Judaism. I think those were his words. This is a common phrase. Zionism is as part of Judaism as the resurrection is to Christianity. Okay? So for, for all the people who know nothing about Judaism, uh, just for the record, I not only taught Jewish history and Judaism at the City University of New York, I've written the most widely used English language introduction to Judaism. It's in print for 50 years. Did I write it 50 years ago? Yeah, amazing. I started writing at a very early age, obviously. Uh, Zionism is... Uh, is it, 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 is not removable from Judaism. You don't have Judaism. Zion, Israel, is the centerpiece of the entire narrative of the Torah. You will go into that land. What, what did we? I, I asked you to look it up. How many times is Zion mentioned in the Hebrew Bible? Sixty or something? Yeah. Right. About sixty times. That's where the word comes from. 
Zionism is simply the centrality of Zion to uh, Judaism. And Jews pray for these morons uh, on, on the left who make up the lie that uh, Zionism is not part of Judaism. By the way, there are some, some morons on the right who've said this, but m- there's no comparison, the ratio. Uh, you can say you hate Jews, okay? It's a free, it's a free speech, but lying is, uh, uh, is a, uh, should be forbidden, should be looked down upon. If, it were, if lying were looked down upon, there would be no left. Jews pray every day, three times a day, that God bring them from the four corners of the earth uh, uh, back to Israel, back to Zion. I, I just remember my analogy. Zionism is as part, as much part of Judaism as the resurrection is to Christianity. So to, if you had people who know nothing about uh, Christianity, couldn't name the four Gospels, telling you, what well, the resurrection is not important to Christianity, uh, that's how Jews who know Judaism feel about the people, including uh, people who were born Jewish and, uh, and do not give a damn about being a Jew, except use it to crap on traditional Jews uh, when they say that Zionism is not part of Judaism. Wow. Say it loud, say it clear. We don't want Zionists here. 700 kids chanted that in Brooklyn, in the United States of America. That's a first, you realize. The left and and uh, fundamentalist Muslims have introduced anti-Semitism into America uh, in a, on a level that has never existed in American history. And there was anti-Semitism in, in the United States. But the United States was much more Judeophilic than Judeo-hating. Another, another horrible consequence of leftists, Jew hatred in America. That's why it's so important to them to show Charlottesville. Oh, look, did you see? We don't want Jews here. See those Charlottesville Nazis? Right, as, as if that's comparable. Can you get, uh, can you get 600 kids to shout uh, Nazi slogans in, in Brooklyn? They are shouting Nazi slogans, but they're on the left. Students protesting near Franklin Delano Roosevelt High School in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, were captured on video yelling, F the Jews. Jewish students were horrified. No kidding. One Fort Hamilton High School mom said her daughter to her daughter, don't go to school Friday out of fear. When the mom called the school, an administrator told her it's complicated. It's complicated. We return momentarily.
Gold dealers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. What sets these companies apart, and whom can you really trust? This is Dennis Prager for AmFed Coin and Bullion. My choice for buying precious metals. When you buy precious metals, it's imperative that you buy from a trustworthy and transparent dealer that protects your best interests. So many companies use gimmicks to take advantage of inexperienced gold and silver buyers. Be cautious of brokers offering free gold and silver, or brokers that want to sell you overpriced collectible coins, claiming they appreciate more than gold and silver. What about hidden commissions and huge markups? Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed always have your back. I trust this man. That's why I mentioned him by name. Nick's been in this industry over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build trusted relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion, 800-221-7694, AmericanFederal.com, AmericanFederal.com. Yo soy Dennis Prager. So my, I have a very, 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 very big topic. And it is the America First devotees who want America to stay out of any involvement in world problems like wars like the Middle East obviously no troops but Israel has never wanted one American troop but even weapons or financial aid so I read an article in American Greatness it says American Greatness I, strikes me as they have a variety of views of conservatives or do they are, are do they you think they are on board don't they publish Victor Davis Hanson yeah well so one writer for American Greatness wrote a, a, a piece I read every word of it against involvement against helping Israel not because of animosity to Israel this is none of our business. We have too many problems at home. Is that the American greatness view, or is that... There is no American greatness view. They have a, a variety. Okay, I was just curious. So, I, I am writing my column on this issue, and this is what... This is the title of the piece, or the working title, let's put it this way. And that is... If America first means America only, count me out. That's that's it. I am America first. I I believe in good nationalism. Just as I believe in good religion. There's bad religion and good religion. There's bad nationalism and good nationalism. There's nothing that's pure. But I I don't believe in America only. So th- there's a division among American firsters. America first or America only. If we're invaded, we'll react. Anybody else is we have uh, we don't want to get involved in any way not even financially this uh 
this is a very un-American and amoral approach to the world, in my opinion. Let me read to you from the column in American Greatness. It begins, not my circus, not my monkeys. The American first position on the Israel-Hamas mess is clear. Stay far, far away. Being America first means that instead of spending money and instead of spending weapons. We uh, I have the rest of that sentence here, but I'll get it for you. So it's not my circus and it's not my monkeys. Well, there you go. Being Americans means that instead of spending money and sending weapons into conflicts on the other side of the world, we should focus on problems here. There has always been this uh, element of uh, isolationism among conservatives. It's understandable, uh, but it, it doesn't strike me as good for America or good period. So I give an example of, let's take it on the micro level. I am a Prager family first, just as I hope you are the O'Connor family first, or uh, whatever last name you want to use. Everyone assumes that people take care of their family first. But if you said, I only take care of my family, because after all, we have problems too, and they say, really? You don't give any charity, for example? You don't volunteer any time to anyone but family? Would that person be considered good? Or would that idea be considered a moral idea? If you only take care of yourself, that's not the same thing as first. Hi everybody, you're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. And I am dealing with a rather important subject, a division among conservatives between those who believe America first means America only and those who do not believe America first believes America only. They believe America first. The, it's a dishonest uh, aspect of, the, of those who say that we should not get involved, and I'm reading to you a piece from American Greatness exactly that to that effect, we should not get involved in any other dispute. They should not say they're America first. That's dishonest. They should say we're America only. Because first, the very implication of the term first is that there is a second. Correct? Isn't that what it means? First doesn't mean only. My family is first, but they're not the only concern I have in life. If somebody invades my neighbor and I could shoot them, I will shoot them. I will give my neighbor as much aid as I can. Not to mention your friends. 
Yeah, oh, that's right. Not, not to, not, very good point. Not to mention my friends. There, there is a concentric circle of commitments in life. It, 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 emotionally and morally. My, my first concern is to, is to fight evil beyond taking care of my home. I want to fight evil elsewhere. Well, this uh, this author in American greatness is an, an America only advocate. I haven't mentioned his name because it's not relevant. Or is it relevant? Should I mention the name? I I, I tend not to do that. I tend to fight arguments rather than people. I don't think it's necessary. You don't think it's necessary either. Fine. Okay. No, he's not someone I'm familiar with. Exactly. That's fair enough. I, 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 I want it to be on the issue. This is a, a, a tear that can rupture uh, the country. It is just, this tear between America first, uh, between America firsters, those who believe it is America only and those who believe it is America first, but not only, is uh, is a very, very, very big rift. In other regards, these people are my allies, but this this is a big rift. Yeah. Between, let's see, how would we put it? Between, yeah, America's for America first and America only. It, it it also it causes you to stop thinking in moral terms. So I'm reading to you from this uh, article. The answer to who Americans should support in the war between Hamas and the Israelis is simple: America. Mm-hmm. So we don't support Israel. This is now becoming a widespread position among conservatives between a totalitarian theocracy bent on extermination and a a functioning western democratic state with civil rights you're neutral and you're proud of yourself that means that it means that nationalism. See what I've always said. I'm I'm a big believer in nationalism because I I don't like internationalism among other reasons. I trust the United States more than I trust the UN. Although I trust the United States under left wing rule as much as I trust the UN, which is under left wing rule. It means that we have abandoned any any claim to morals moral significance in the world if you're a, if you're an american onlyer and you're a christian how do you how do you reconcile that
The line between good and evil runs through every human heart, Arab and Jewish, Armenian and Azeri. I don't, I don't understand the line, so I, as I said at the end of the last hour, it's not worthy of a comment, really, because I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Does he mean to say that because the line between good and evil runs through the human heart, there is no good and evil in the world that you could define? Well, what, what does it mean? Does that mean that Israel and Hamas are moral equivalents? That's the implication. As Americans, we do not need to proclaim one way or the other. Wow, this is really heavy-duty stuff. It does not matter that Israel is the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. America does not have democracy here at home. Why should we care about spreading it abroad? Yeah. We have uh, we have some relatives with cancer. Why should we care if people have cancer who are not related to us? The claim that Hamas is Hitler is also a lie. What was the other lie? What's What it mean is also... Hamas is Hitler. They don't deny it. Statesmanship, however, is not about satisfying the passions, but about following the guidance of reason. Israel must exercise the caution and reserve that the times call for. See? You end up, when you are an American-only person, not an American America first person, it has a corrosive impact on your conscience, on your moral clock, moral compass, I should say. In this situation, comparisons to the Holocaust by Israeli leaders, Israelis leaders and defenders are neither warranted nor helpful. He doesn't explain why. Why are they not warranted or helpful? That's exactly what they would like, is another Jewish holocaust. This is in a a publication. I don't blame the publication at all. Uh, They print me every week. They print Victor Davis Hanson. But it is in a prestigious conservative, on a prestigious conservative website. If you agree with him, obviously I want to hear with you, but please understand... There is not only a rift between right and left, there is a a rift between America firsters, America first or America only. So, this uh, this is a real issue. Let's see what, uh, what you folks have to say about this. We have a lot of calls. And they're all good. But, um, all right, let's see what uh, what we have here. Clearwater, Florida. Jeff, hello. Hello, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I love listening to you. Thank you. Um, First off, about the subject you got there, I think that the Jews are God's chosen people. I'm a Christian, but I think we have to do everything to defend the Jews and and their right to be God's chosen people. I think we should support them all the way. Well, Uh, I can only say this, that 
many of my fellow Jews have thought that they would be most secure in a secular America, and my entire life I have told them they're wrong, that an America with Christians going to church each week is the most secure America they'll ever live in. I agree with you. And the second thing I wanted to talk about was something that had a little bit of a disagreement with something you said Friday, if I may. Mm -hmm. Um, You were talking about the life expectancy in America, how it's fallen compared to other countries. And I want to suggest that maybe you missed something there, because I think the reason it's fallen is because of fentanyl. Yeah, let me me comment. I don't remember saying that, uh, but... uh, hmm? Yeah, you don't remember either. Yeah, but it's okay. It's worthy of noting, and I'll, I'll respond. Mike Lindell has a passion to help you get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop at the pillow. Mike also created the Giza Dream bed sheets. These sheets look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep, which is crucial for overall health. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable. Mike's latest deal is the sale of the year for a limited time. You'll receive 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets, marking prices down as low as $29.98, depending on the size. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio podcasts square, and use the promo code Prager. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper, MyPillow kitchen towel sets, and so much more. Call 800-761-6302 or go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager. Okay, well, I don't remember mentioning... The American, uh, what is it, uh, life expectancy, yeah, as going down. But fentanyl is definitely a reason. We're in total agreement about that. I'm reading a book. What is his name? David Harsani. Is that how it's pronounced? On Europe. Did you know he wrote a book on Europe? So he discusses the life expectancy rate issue. And he makes a point based on one of the most brilliant quips I've ever heard. I, you'll love this. I don't, I don't know if you know this. So Milton Friedman made a comment about Scandinavian crime rates. Because people say, look at how low the crime rate is in Scandinavian countries. He said, yeah, look at how low the crime rate is among Scandinavians in America. That brilliant. Mm-hmm. The point is, its values. Right. Of course, they don't have a low crime rate in Scandinavia anymore. And they don't. That's right. They don't have a low crime rate in Scandinavia anymore because they've let in non non Scandinavians. Mm-hmm. And of course, the left will say that that's racist because the left never argues issues; they only smear opponents. They th- because remember. Truth is not a left-wing value, so they don't ask, is the Milton Friedman or Dennis Prager point true? That is of no consequence to leftists. It is how can we figure out how to smear a point that we don't like. It has nothing to do with race. 
it has to do everything is everything is values. Remember, Hitler was white, just for the record. So how, how could one be a white supremacist? Uh, Stalin was white. Stalin was the ultimate Caucasian. He came from Georgia, which is in the Caucasus, right? <laughs> Racism. It's all about values. All right, what do you th- what do you think though about my argument about the division among American firsters, those who say it means America only, and those who believe it means America first? But let's see here. We have a lot of calls. On, I, I I haven't taken calls in a few days. It's other than the usual Friday, of course. Uh, let's see what you folks have to say. Uh, Los Angeles, Brent, hello. Hello, Dennis. How do I talmudically crush a genocidal anti-Semitic New York rabbi? And I say this because Kathleen Wells of the 870 Naked Truth Report on Sunday nights is supporting the allegedly oppressed Palestinian people and wants to invite onto her show the alleged Orthodox rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, who's an avowed anti-Zionist, declaring Zionism and modern Israel to be synthetic and artificial constructs and a form of identity theft. And I saw him interviewed online by an alleged human rights activist, Miko Pellid, who proudly wears a BDS button. So could you please advise me on how I can place a torpedo up his torres? <laughs> okay, I won't translate. The latter you can probably all understand. That you, can, you can infer what it means, a torpedo up his torres. Jews seem to have a particular uncanny ability to produce a, 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 a minority, but nevertheless groups of rather sick people. To be a religious Jew and support those who wish to exterminate Israel is a, a level of sickness that to, to which there is, I don't think, any parallel in suicidal wishes of any group. There's a very tiny group of, of Jews who have some sick theology. Sick theologies have existed in every religion. How many of the Christians who went on the crusade to liberate Jerusalem from the Islamic conquest slaughtered Jews in the name of Christ on the way to the Holy Land? That's a pretty sick theology. You killed Christ, so we'll kill you. As if they killed Christ, by the way. And so, no no religion is immune to sick theology. As I said earlier, Jews pray three times a day to be gathered into Zion. Their theory is that Until the Messiah returns, or, well, no, that's, that's Christian theology. Until the Messiah comes, the Jews uh, should not return to Zion. I don't know where they got it from. It, it's, it, it, it's certainly not biblical. 
it, it's bizarre. But even if they believe that, to to help the people who wish to exterminate fellow Jews, there the, if there is a heaven and a hell, and I my inner tranquility depends upon there being reward and punishment in the afterlife because there's so little in this life. Uh, These people will have a special place in hell. But uh, they're they're very useful for the people who want to destroy Israel. Look, here's an Orthodox Jew. And they play that role. idea of, of, of the uh, pervasive moral decline in the country. Where is this story about the school? Let's see here. Here it is. This is from Newsweek. There's even a picture. Fremont High School. Where is Fremont High School? In the Bay Area? Okay, it was sort of a silly question. Where else is it going to be? Fremont High School had in front of the school, instead of the American flag or the California flag, it had the Palestinian flag. Well, look, the combination of leftists and fundamentalist Muslims is the pincer movement in which the West finds itself, and half of the West doesn't even know it. So we're... we're, uh, It would be very hard for me to dissuade a pessimist. However, I don't give a damn about pessimism or optimism. I only give a damn about whether you do anything. That's the only question that matters. What should I do? Not do I think we'll win. I'll tell you this, if you don't fight or help the fighters, we won't win. But not only did the school put up a Palestinian flag, I want to read to you a statement made by the Oakland, uh, what is it? United School District, right? U is for United, LAUSD is LA United, yeah, right. The Oakland, California, United School District Superintendent, Kyla Johnson Trammell, wrote to, in reaction, she wrote to the public, to students, to teachers, to parents, quote, you've heard me say that violence is never the way to resolve problems between people And that goes for acts of war as well. It is hard for me to believe that even she believes such a stupid comment. This is what goes for moral thought on the left. So let let me ask her a question. Was violence the solution in terms of war, said that goes for acts of war as well. Really? What ended slavery in the United States? Peaceful demonstrations? 
or civil war. I mean, just just to ask one thing about something that I'm sure she's very troubled by, right? And that is uh, racism in America and slavery. Well, it ended because of a war. The Holocaust ended because of a war. There's never a moral war. By the way, have we lost internet access? Uh, Do we still have it? I'm not getting anything. (laughs) What are you going to do? You've heard me say that violence is never the way to resolve problems between people. Oh, really? So, uh, Kyla Johnson Trammell, if an invader came into your house, how would you solve it without violence? Our kids are being made stupid in schools. I believe that. I believe it literally. This is a stupid comment. There is no truth to the comment. It is both untrue and stupid. (laughs) Yep. Violence is never the way to resolve problems between people. Really? Really? How would you have solved the Hitler or Tojo or Stalin or slavery problem? Back in a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Dennis Prager Show. Well, welcome to it. The back to it was uh, something I cannot be certain of. I don't remember the last time I spoke to this uh, remarkable woman, but uh, I remember her well. She's one of the leading climate scientists in the country. Judith Curry is the former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. That's a big deal, (laughs) i got to say. And uh, she has now come out with a new book published by an academic press. But it's for all of us. It's actually in English, not in academese. And it is titled, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. Uh, 
And I am delighted to welcome Professor Curry. Judith, welcome back to my show. It's been a while. Oh, well, thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, I, I, I hope uh, a lot of our people read your book. I want to read something from your book here and have you comment. There, there, this is a very big deal. You write, given the important role of skepticism in science, how did skepticism about climate change come to be an accusation? With some scientific researchers in academia being branded as deniers, heretics, misinformers, and anti-science. So that's uh, one question I want to deal with you, and we at PragerU directly experience this because virtually every attack on us, and there is an attack every other day somewhere in the country because schools are beginning to use our videos for kids, that exactly every one of those terms has been used. I don't know about heretic. Deniers, misinformers, and anti-science, even though we have scientists give uh, many of these uh, talks. Then you write in the next paragraph, virtually all academic climate scientists, that that's you, are within the so-called 97% consensus regarding the existence of a human impact on warming of the Earth's climate. So then you correctly infer, so what's the issue? So climate heresy seems to be associated at least as much with the sociological aspects of the public debate as with the actual content of climate science. Okay, let's unpack all of this. This is worthy of a lot of time. So let me understand. Let's do the 97% issue. I've done some reading on this for a while. The 97% issue is much more limited and not exactly itself scientifically based. What do you believe, if anything, about 97% of climate scientists? Okay, I mean, there's certain things that nobody disagrees about, um, that the temperatures on Earth have overall increased since about 1860. Um, that burning fossil fuels puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and carbon dioxide has an infrared emission spectra. I mean, nobody disagrees with those basic things. What the debate is about is to what extent does human-caused warming um, dominate over natural variability, or is natural variability more important? We really have no good idea of how the climate of the 21st century is actually going to play out. And the whole issue as to whether warming is dangerous is an issue of values, and there's a great deal of disagreement about that. So, I mean, there, there's all sorts of things that we don't understand about climate science. It's a relatively young field. It's an exceedingly complex subject associated with deep uncertainties and ambiguities and values as to what all this means in terms of, you know, possible impact on society. So there's been an attempt 
to oversimplify this and put a, uh, you know, th this all started with a political rationale back in the 1990s to eliminate fossil fuels and for, you know, non-governmental <laughs> control by the UN. And th this was put into play even with the 1992 treaty from the UN, which even the U.S. signed to um, avoid dangerous anthropogenic climate change by eliminating fossil fuel emissions. So the policy card has been way out in front of the scientific horse from the very beginning on this. That's a great line. The policy card has been way ahead <laughs> of the, uh, what was it, the scientific uh, horse. Yes. Okay, th this is so important. First of all, by any chance, I don't even expect you to, but do you know, I knew at one time, I have forgotten, how did they arrive at the 97% number? Okay, th this goes back to an article that was published by some social scientists and climate activists. And what they did is they had a bunch of systems you know, peruse the abstracts of scientific papers and they would rank them as supporting the global warming hypothesis or not. Well, most of them don't mention it either way. I mean, in the supporting ones, they, they include engineering papers talking about how to make inexpensive cook stoves for India. And they included that as supporting you know, the, the climate science consensus, which makes absolutely no sense. So it, so the paper itself was just a travesty. But President Obama tweeted this, okay, and this whole 97% thing went viral, and then it became, you know, the norm. Right, uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm already lost. How did producing... Uh, what did you say? What type of stoves for India? Oh, oh, like, you know, rather than, you know, in countries that don't have grid electricity or whatever, right. they the, cook with stoves, they burn dung, they burn right. wood, indoor air quality so, so how did that get translated into carbon dioxide is warming the planet? Um, in, in no rational way, but that just shows how irrational this whole exercise was. And people were counting these abstracts who had no idea what they were doing. Um, the, the, the authors on this paper had a clear agenda. They wanted to where stimulate was the action. Forgive me, where was the paper published? I can't even remember where it was actually published. And how um, did Barack Obama get a hold of it? Because I, I, I never recall him speaking about the stoves and dung in India. Uh, no, he didn't talk about that. I know, I'm were, joking. You know, but but he, yeah. you, said, you said he tweeted uh, he's, he's, th this thesis of 97%, who, how did he get a hold of this? Um, I actually have no idea, but this made this whole thing All right, go so viral. some environmentalist, that's what made it go viral? I never knew that. Oh, yeah. Oh, another achievement of the Obama administration. <laughs> you don't have to comment on that. I, 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 I do this for a living. But <laughs> it's really, it's depressing. So, so... Okay, so let me ask you, I know there's no scientific answer to this question, and, and you, could, you could certainly uh, plead the Fifth Amendment here, but uh, if there were a secret, and, and everyone believed no names would get out, a, a vote or a poll 
of 1,000 climate scientists, whatever that means, what percentage would say as follows? The world is heating overwhelmingly because of human beings uh, uh, burning a, a fossil fuel, and this will this poses an, a threat to the existence of biological life. What percentage of the thousand would say yes? Um, probably a lot, but you have to break down the population. People call themselves climate scientists if their degree is in ecology or economics or sociology or geochemistry, you know, all sorts of subfields. Sociology. Oh, geez, yeah. Okay, people, oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, On the impacts, you know, the Working Group 2 report from the IPCC is written primarily by sociologists. So what you have... All right, hold on, hold on there. I want to <laughs> sell your book. I want people to know about it. The book is Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response by This Great Climate Scientist, and it is up at DennisPrager.com. My guest is Judith Curry, one of the leading climate scientists in the country. She was the chair I'm old enough to remember when people were chairman, but they got rid of that. Former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. By the way, uh, Professor, and you've, you've welcomed my calling you Judith, although my parents were so adamant that I call people by their title, it is still not easy for me. <laughs> But I feel it would put a sort of distance between us. I'm just curious, when you entered the field, were you one of the only women? Um, Women were a small minority. And, you know, there was this glass ceiling effect. There were some women going through and getting their PhD, but they wouldn't manage to get faculty positions, or if they did get faculty positions, they left before getting tenure. So there was sort of a leaky pipeline of females. So um, I was one of the early females who actually made it into an administrative position. And you were at the Georgia Institute of Technology, known as Georgia Tech, obviously. And uh, did you grow up in Georgia? Oh, geez, no. I grew up in Illinois, (laughs) Chicago. I'm a Chicagoan. And um, I moved around quite a bit before landing at Georgia Tech. I did a postdoc at University of Wisconsin-Madison. My first faculty position was at Purdue. Um, Then I moved to Penn State, then to University of Colorado Boulder before I landed at Georgia Tech. So, I mean, there were I, I was recruited away from these institutions because, you know, as a female with a good reputation and a strong funding base, I was a relatively hot commodity for universities. I just want to uh, verify that you're from Chicago. Pronounce G-O-L-F, the sport. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what that is. So. No, no, the, the sport, the sport. I just don't want to say it. I don't want to 
I, I don't want in effect. Go, go left? I, I, no, no, I don't go, know what. All right. I say golf. What do you say? Golf? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, oh, the golf. Yeah. G-O-L-F. Yes. Okay, yeah. golf. <laughs> that, that proves you're from Chicago. That's all. Okay. That, that's the given. My producer's from Chicago, and he says golf. And I always say, I'm sorry. I'm not not <laughs> not certain what he's referring to. But anyway, anyway it, it's just me and my nonsense. So, But I love nonsense. It's, it's, that, that's why I did well in college. Now, so back to your my question to you, 97, the 97% issue. I asked you, what if they were assured a secret ballot, what percentage of climate scientists out of uh, in America would say, A, uh, warming is overwhelmingly caused by humans, it is caused by humans burning fossil fuel, and that that poses an existential threat to biological life? And you said, if I'm not mistaken, the 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 great majority would. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, but I, I qualified that into three categories. First, we have the large number of people in Renaissance subfields, if you will. You know, the social sciences studying impacts of climate change, uh, ecosystems, chemists, whatever. Okay, and then you have at the other extreme, you have people with a deep physics-based understanding of how the climate system works. And, uh, you know, when you hear about skeptical scientists, they tend to be in that category. People with a deep physics-based understanding of how the climate system works, who understand something about complex systems, who understand the challenges in modeling um, highly complex systems, you know, with open boundaries and so forth and so on. So these are the people who tend to be, you know, the most vocal skeptics. Um, I'll throw out a few names, Richard Lindzen, John Christie, Steve Coonan. The, the most recent outspoken skeptic is John Clauser, the recent Nobel physics laureate, who's been very publicly outspoken in his criticism of the conventional wisdom and the IPCC on climate change. So you've got people who deeply understand this, who can actually be critical, critically evaluate the whole thing. And then on the other hand, you have this huge population of people who know how to recite talking points about the fundamentals and then in their own research, explore one tiny little avenue that assumes human cause climate warming rather than understands it or critically evaluates it. So the, the question you ask doesn't have a simple answer. And given the preponderance of people in that first category, the ecologists, the economists, and whatever, um, huge number. So if you just took a vote amongst PhD holding scientists who call themselves climate scientists, the overwhelming majority would say, yes, I agree with that. But the people who really understand the physics-based part of what causes climate change tends to have a much larger percentage of skeptics. Your skepticism is with regard to, again, there were three propositions. Tell me how you feel about each that 
it is overwhelming. The warming is overwhelmingly caused by human beings, and that the uh, actually there were two propositions plus the first that the climate is warming. I assume you assume the climate is warming, correct? It is warming. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to get to that too, though. So one that it is overwhelmingly caused by humans, and uh, second that it poses an existential threat to life. So I'm going to have your response when we come back, because uh, that those are the issues. People lump everybody with skepticism on any one of those points as a denier. The book uh, that uh, we're discussing is Judith Curry's book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. It is up at DennisPrager.com. one of the leading climate scientists of the country, Judith Curry. She was the chairman of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. And she has this book out for both scientists and lay people, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. Before we go back to the questions I was posing, has the book been peer-reviewed? Oh, heavens. <laughs> yeah, th- through the process, again, my publisher, Anthem, has a very rigorous peer review system in place. Um, the, the extended proposal for the book was, I think, reviewed by about eight people, and then um, a very detailed review of the manuscript was undertaken by four people, and there was also a review by their editorial board. So this was a, you know, quite, quite a substantial uh, peer review of the book. And this is why I selected that particular publisher. Um, you know, since I'm brandished as a, you know, a denier and a misinformer or whatever, having this book rigorously peer reviewed was very important to me. So I'm curious, was it somewhat of an act of courage on the part of the publisher to publish it? Um, The publisher, I think, specializes more in books on, I would say, humanities and social sciences. That's where their main reputation lies. And they were starting a new sustainability series. Um, And, you know, they contacted me early in COVID, and I said, perfect timing to write a book and I did my investigation into the publisher and I said yeah I'm, I'm going to go with this let me see how it flies and a lot of the reviewers of my proposal said she you know that she is a hugely controversial person you know in the the climate field but her voice needs to be heard um, you know so they acknowledged that I was a controversial person um, and so they they went in, you know, with with eyes wide open on this, and they approved my book proposal, and I was of course delighted. And I think they're, you know, they they provided me with you know very good editorial and marketing support, and I couldn't be happier with my choice of publisher. So if you had to predict which will happen sooner or more likely 
Earth Hit by a Comet or the New York Times reviewing your book? <laughs> um, the, the reviews are slow in coming. I've had, let's see, Washington Times um, review the book. Um, you know, the, the re oh, I have a review forthcoming in the L.A. Times. Really? Um, oh, I can't wait to revised. see it. Okay, so so that is one. Apparently, it's being revised. It, the original version was too long. So I'm getting, there's a version now published in Germany, and we're working on one in um, Romanian. So, I mean, the, the having this gain traction is slow, but I think it's, you know, a sufficiently novel perspective that, you know, this book isn't going to be a flash in the pan. I think it's going to be around for a while. And the most interesting thing is that there hasn't been any pushback, shall I say, from the alarmed people. You know, there, there's been, you know, when Bjorn Lomborg and Steve Coonan published their recent books, there were huge attacks and people submitting reviews all over the place, and they really went after them. Um, and that happened was that, that didn't happen with me. Maybe the people who are doing that learned <laughs> from their mistakes. I mean, because Bjorn Lomborg's and Steve Coonan books have, have sold and are continuing to sell extremely well. I mean, maybe they shouldn't bring so much attention to these books they don't like. But there haven't been any, you know, major takedowns of my book, you know, in a serious blog or a publication or a substack or whatever. So that's interesting in itself. I mean, since I talk about uncertainty, I'm as apolitical as I can be. I look at both sides of all this. It's relatively hard. Um, and I have complex arguments. It's not easy to dismiss this book. So, I mean, we'll see what the future holds. But so far, there have been no serious takedowns of the, the book. The book, my friends, is up at my website, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. Back in a moment. Oh, you, you, stay by my side of you. You kept on the lights and you knew just what to say when I was fading. One of the leading scientists with regard to climate in the country is Professor Judith Curry, former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. The book, which a layperson can understand and which can impress scientists, is Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response. So I... I gave you the, the different propositions, the, the three of them. The earth is warming, humans are the primary cause because of burning fossil fuel, and it's an existential threat. Let's go through all three. Number one, the earth is warming. You acknowledge that, I acknowledge that, but even there is, well, I'll put it as a question, is even there areas of dispute, uh, specifically... How much is it warming? Or is that generally agreed upon? Well, it's generally agreed upon. Um, the data is never good enough, um, especially the farther you go back in time. 
um, even the more recent, you know, the last decade or so, I mean, there's even disagreement among the different global temperature analyses. But, y you know, the fine details of all that probably aren't that significant. You know, the, the, the overall increase in the general magnitude is agreed upon. So I'll get to what the cause is, which was number two. I'm going to go to number three then. So th you, you say there's general agreement on the amount of warming. So I guess the disagreement is, I, I assume, but maybe I'm wrong here, how much of, an, of a threat to life does the agreed-upon warming present? Well, this is really the weakest part of the argument. The danger is neither clear nor present. Um, you know, warm periods are generally referred to as climate optimums because, you know, civilizations have thrived. I mean, the baseline that they're... Sorry. Oh, so sorry. That we measure the recent warming is sort of pre-industrial, like the mid-18th century. Well, this was in the Little Ice Age, which was the coldest period, you know, of the last millennium. I mean, why anybody thinks that was a Goldilocks climate, I don't know. Um, you know, during this warming period for the last 150 years, um, civilization has thrived, agricultural productivity has increased, uh, global poverty is way down. Um, even the lives lost from extreme weather and climate events is down by two orders of magnitude. I mean, you know, so, so far we're doing fine in this warming climate. Um, the, the, the reason people are afraid of this or, or the sort of propaganda arounding dangers is that they're trying to tie every extreme weather event to warming. You know, hurricanes, droughts, you know, wildfires, floods, the whole works. But, I mean, this is just natural weather and climate variability. And in the U.S., the worst weather by far was in the 1930s. We had far and away the worst heat waves, um, the worst droughts much worse wildfires in the early part of the 20th century. Even the worst U.S. landfalling hurricanes were in the 1930s. You know, so um, exactly what is the problem here was the warming. Um, maybe the slow creep of sea level rise and some melting of glaciers, which is happening at a slow pace. These are things that we can easily adapt to. So this whole issue of thinking that warming is dangerous depends on a flawed attribution of extreme weather events to global warming. Even the IPCC, I mean, other than heat waves, they don't find any justification for thinking that um, these extreme weather events are tied to the warming. So it raises an inevitable question if you're right, I happen to think you're right, but I'm a layman. But if you're right, one 
is confronted with the question, why would so many scientists take the position that it is an existential threat to life? Um, you know, this existential threat stuff, you know, comes from overheated UN rhetoric that reflects overt political bias and uninformed certainty. The IPCC reports don't even talk about dangers. They talk about reasons for concern. All of this existential threat, code red, highway to hell, this is all political rhetoric and media amplification. I mean, there's just a whole um, media policymakers, science, feedback process that everybody sort of profits from the current narrative. And, you know, the people who are most afraid, you know, that are climate scientists are the impact people, not the people who understand um, the historical data or understand the causes of climate change. So the more you understand about the data and climate dynamics, the less you are concerned about the warming. Who is this man from NASA, Alan? Do you remember the name? James Hansen. James Hansen. Jim Hansen, yeah. Yeah. Jim, of course. <laughs> Jim Hansen subscribes to the existential threat theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has a, a recent paper out that cynically seems to be timed to influence the COP28 um, event where he says that CO2, um, the climate sensitivity to CO2 is much larger than we previously thought. So it's even and worse. Things are even worse. It, it, it's even right. worse. Okay, let me get back to you because I want to promote the book. It's a really important book. And that is Climate Uncertainty and Risk, Rethinking Our Response, up at DennisPrager.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of Pragertopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at Pragertopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.